I can't tell you how honored and privileged uh, I was to be asked to come this weekend with the youth and then to be here on this Sunday. Um, could we just give a hand to Jared and all of the host homes who stayed up late with these kiddos? Yeah. Tell you. Jared's an awesome guy. Um, I'm really jealous of his facial hair, though. This is, this is about two weeks of progress for me. Um, and uh, the, the more I get to know your pastor, the more I realize I want to be Brandon Duncan when I grow up. You know, he's, yeah. Yeah, clap for him. He's a great guy. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to spend the majority of our time in James chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14, work our way through verse 26, Lord willing. Uh, It's going to take me a minute to get there. I've kind of got an introduction, and I want to start in the book of John. But if you get your Bible there, you'll be uh, in good shape. Uh, Today I want to talk about the subject of an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a religious activity, but an authentic relationship with the Lord of Lords and the King of of kings. And before we get started, why don't you look at your neighbor and say, you are lucky to be sitting by me this morning. You are blessed. I want to start in um, probably the most uh, famous Bible verse of all time. I mean, if you ask a non-Christian to name one Bible verse, they're probably going to give you bits and pieces of this verse. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about John 3.16. John writes this in his gospel. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then I think verse 17 is almost cooler than verse 16. It says, For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him that I, I talked to the youth about this last night. And it makes me so excited. Our God is a generous God that, that every other religion wants something from you. If you do the right amount of things, if you give the right amount of money, if you make the right journey, then maybe if you do it well enough, then God might like you. We give to God and we expect maybe something in return. Our God is so different. Our God looked at us and he said, there's no way you could do enough to please me. He says our righteous acts are like filthy rags to him. And yet he loved us so much that he, what did he do? He gave. He sent his son so that whosoever believes, it's that simple, would have eternal life in him. It's amazing. And then I love verse 17 because verse 17 says he didn't come to condemn the world. Man, so many of us feel like God's just waiting for us to mess up. But that's not at all what it is. God came to save you. He wants to lead you into something that is better. And I think if we've been a Christian for a long time, we can maybe in our minds kind of think that or say that we know that or answer a question on a test and say, yes, God loves me no matter what I do. But honestly, in our heart of hearts, I think sometimes we kind of drift into feeling as if we maybe have a little bit something to do with it. I hear people say, you know, that guy's going to hell for what he just did. What they mean is because that was so bad, you know, God's going to look at him and say, never mind, buddy. Uh, and, and as a preacher, I do a lot of funerals, and, and a lot of times I'll hear with the grieving family, you know, hey, they didn't go to church, and they didn't say much about Jesus, but I know they're in heaven because they were such a good person, and God just had to allow them in. Uh, again, saying, because of how good they are, it, it affected the way God loved them, and this is not the way God loves us at all. God does not love us like my old friend Hunter Munsell loved me. 
Now, when you look at me, your first thought probably isn't cowboy. Um, But believe it or not, I actually used to be a cowboy when I was younger. And I say that very lightly. My parents or my grandparents were involved in rodeoing and they bought me a horse. And so I went sometimes. Um, I did I did three events. Uh, I did goat tying, which is an awesome sport. You get on your horse, and you ride your horse down as fast as you can down the arena towards an innocent little baby goat. You jump off of your horse. You pick the baby goat up, and you body slam it on the ground, tie its legs together as fast as you can, and throw your hands in the air. And the fastest time wins. It is every bit as inhumane as it sounds. And it's awesome. I loved it. And then I did two other sports, uh, bowls and uh, poles and barrels, but I'm not going to talk about them because they're girl sports, okay? Um, now, you might be picking up that I wasn't very good at rodeoing, and so most of my memories aren't actually from the events. Um, my memories come from the relationships I formed. I have a lot of good friends still from those days. Um, one of those friends was a guy who was a couple years older than me. Her, his name was Hunter Munsell. Now, when you think cowboy, you might actually think Hunter Munsell. I mean, this guy just dripped cool. Um, I think it was one of those relationships where I maybe liked him more than he liked me. I was kind of annoying him probably most of the time. Um, but the reason I thought Hunter was so cool is because he did calf riding. Now, again, if you're not familiar with rodeoing, calf riding is basically where um, they put a little child on an animal that wants to kill them, and it's your goal to ride it for eight seconds. And then they, they put a little flank strap on the back to make the bull or the, the little baby bull even more mad at you, and it tries to kill you even worse. And so, like, I'm never doing that, right? I don't like roller coasters. There's no way I'm getting on an animal that wants to kill me. But Hunter did, and I thought that was awesome. Until one day, my sweet and loving grandfather decided to sign me up for calf riding without asking me first. And uh, so I remember I was showing up, and, and I was so mad at him for signing me up. And, and I went to Hunter. I was going to vent to him. And I, I can't believe my grandpa signed me up for calf riding. And all of a sudden, the cool Hunter Munsell became my best friend. He said, oh, really? Well, that's awesome. Here, let me get you some chaps. And he went in his, his trailer that costs more than some of our houses, and he pulled out these things that, that, that you put on your legs. And I honestly, to this day, have no idea what purpose they're actually supposed to serve. I just thought they were cool. Had like a nice design on it. And I remember running over to my grandpa like, hey, can we buy some of these? And he's, yeah, maybe you should ride the calf before we, we make the investment in that. And uh, man, I hung out with Hunter all day. He was like my best friend. And, you know, all the ladies were walking by and going, oh, you ride calves? You know, yeah. No big deal, you know, just kind of calf ride. You know, I'm just, I'm just living up the rodeo life and uh, until 6 o'clock. Because at 6 o'clock, that's when I actually had to ride the calf. And uh, I was overcome with emotion. Um, so what they're supposed to do when you're in the pen waiting to be released, they're supposed to wait for the rider to say, let me go, I'm ready, a head nod, anything really. Um, but what I found out is after three minutes, they stop listening to you. Uh, because I'm sobbing, you know, so a good grandpa would say, never mind, and pull, pull his grandkid off the calf, right? Not my grandpa. He holds me down, and he says, he's ready. Let him go. <laughs> you guys are laughing at my pain. So uh, they open the gate, and in front of all my family, all of my friends, super embarrassing, my eyes get the size of softballs. I lean down, and I bear hug this calf, and I scream at the top of my lungs, Mom! So uh, needless to say, that was my once and only ride of a calf. Um, and uh, after I got off, I went and I took Hunter his chaps and I threw him down at his trailer. I'm never doing this again. And I walk away and, and, you know, that was that. And I come back to the next rodeo and I'm going back to my best friend Hunter, you know, because we were best friends just last week. And, uh, you know, I tried to go in his trailer and he said, no, only real cowboys are allowed. And I was like, ah. Oh. You see, 
Hunter liked me when I was doing what he wanted me to do. Hunter thought it was cool and we could be friends as long as I was doing the events he wanted me to do. And this is how a lot of us view God, whether we say it or not. You know, God really loves me. I know he does because I've done my quiet time all week. God really loves me because, man, I, I've had perfect attendance at church this year. I'm two for two. Like, God's really in love with me, right? But if I don't have my quiet time, if I stumble, if I fall back into a sin I, I once had before, if I begin to struggle in my marriage, if I begin to struggle in my finances, well, then God doesn't love me as much. That God obviously loves Brandon Duncan more than he loves Blake Farley, and there's no way he doesn't. And, and we begin to think that God's love is dependent upon what we do. And yet, that's not how God loves us. God doesn't love us like Hunter Munsell. He loves us a lot more like how I love my little brother. Uh, my youngest brother is adopted. And through a lot of circumstances, Peyton, my little brother's name, uh, he was living with us before we actually adopted him. I was about 12 years old, and every night I would pray, God, will you please make Peyton my little brother? Like, I just, I just wanted him to be my brother so bad. And I remember one day my dad comes in, and uh, he, he says, you know, we're, we're thinking about adopting Peyton. Would that be okay with you? And I was like, okay with me? That would be great. That'd be awesome. You know, I love him. He's already my brother in my heart. And uh, so he said, okay, you know, and then, well, we're going to kind of begin to go down that path. And literally that night, my little brother, who's still a, an infant, he's still crawling, crawls into my room, and I'm playing PlayStation. And what you need to know about me is I love my PlayStation more than I love some people, okay? Um, and, and I'm in the middle of this game that I've invested like two hours in. And my, my little baby brother, he crawls in between me and the TV screen, and he looks at me, and he looks at the TV, and he grabs my PlayStation cord, and he yanks it as hard as he can to the ground. I have never been so close to murder in my entire life. Okay, I, I, am, I was fuming because not only did he ruin my game, he broke my PlayStation. I, I was so upset. My dad comes in, and he pulls my little brother out of the room, and, and a little while later, he comes back in, and he says, Blake... I'm so sorry about your PlayStation, but you know, if we have a baby in the house, this kind of stuff's going to happen all of the time. Do you still want him to be your brother? And without hesitation, I said, yes, I want him to be my brother because I love him. He's my family. There's nothing he did to earn my love. I don't know if you know this about babies, but they're selfish little creatures. They don't care about you. All they do is eat, sleep, and poop, and you have to help them with all of those things. So he, he certainly did not earn my love, and so there was no way he could lose my love. Even taking out my PlayStation, still my brother. I still love him. I'm mad at him, but I still love him. And my love did not change for him. And this is how God sees us. When we accept him, we are in his family. He no longer sees us for our sin. He sees us for what Jesus did on our behalf. And there's nothing that can rip that away. There's nothing that can take that away. You do nothing, no amount of works to earn your faith. And there's nothing you can do to lose your faith. Okay, now I say all of that, and all of that is super true. And now as we open up to the book of James, starting in verse 14, it's going to sound like the opposite of what I just told you. And I'm going to try to help us reconcile this here. Verse 14, James writing, he says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I have faith in Jesus. Claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? And then he's going to say no. He says this in verse 15. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, uh, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, 
is dead. Everybody say dead. So, okay, so what James just told us, he said, if you say you have faith in Jesus, but there's no evidence, there's no deeds, then it's kind of like helping somebody who's homeless by just saying, hey, I hope you're warm and well-fed, and then not actually giving them food. It's useless. He's saying it's useless. And you might be thinking, Blake, I could be wrong, but I thought you spent like the first eight minutes of this sermon telling me it had nothing to do with my deeds. And now you're saying if I don't have deeds, my faith is dead. Okay, here's what James means. And this is really important that you pay attention to this part. James is saying we don't change for the love of God. You need to understand that there's nothing you do to earn love, earn God's love. You don't have to fix yourself up right now for God to love you. You don't do anything to earn it. But once you experience the love of God, you will be changed. You cannot experience an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ and not be changed. And so I get really frightened when I see people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus because I raised my hand at kids camp when I was seven years old or I got wet in a baptismal pool and I can answer the right questions. I can tell you Jesus is the son of God and he died for my sins. But then there's no evidence in their life at all of it. There is no repentance of sin. They don't look more like Jesus today than they did yesterday. They don't have a heart for worship. They're unable to forgive somebody in their life. Like if you can't forgive in your life, there's something wrong with that if you realize you've been forgiven so greatly by the God of this universe. And I get really, really frightened when somebody says, "Ah, yeah, I have faith, but they don't actually have deeds because true faith, true faith manifests itself and there will be evidence. You don't change for the love of God, but the love of God will change you. And I think we all ought to really pay attention to what James says next because it, it kind of since chills down my spine, honestly, when I think about what he says. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, somebody said, Hey, you have your faith, and I have my deeds. And, and James says, No, 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 you can't disconnect them. I will show you that I have faith in Jesus through what I do. It's the proof of it. It's the evidence of it. And then look at what James says next. This is, this is really scary for those of you who think, I just know the right questions, and that's all I need to know. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You got all the theology right. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If we're just talking about knowledge, if God just wants us to pass the test, then the demons can pass the test way better than you and I ever could. They know this book greater than Blake Farley will ever know this book throughout my entire life. God doesn't just want you to pass a test. It's not just about what you know. It's about actually knowing God. Um, when my, my little brother was younger, uh, like seven, eight years old, he really, really loved to tell jokes. The only problem was he was really bad at telling jokes because uh, he would get so excited about the joke that he would forget the punchline. And so he would learn this at school, and then he'd come home to us, and he'd tell us jokes that just made no sense at all. Um, and I remember this one time specific. He came in, and I was in my room playing PlayStation. Um, you kind of notice a theme there. I played a lot of PlayStation growing up. Um, and my little brother comes in, and he is laughing so hard. He said, Blake, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> and then he runs out of the room before I can even respond, because he's got to tell everybody in the house. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't get it. I don't have any idea what that joke means. And probably 10 minutes passed, and he comes back in my room. And this time, guys, he was laughing so hard, tears were coming down his face. Blake, I mean, can you... Seven, eight, nine. And I was like, I want to get it so bad, buddy. 
So I just tried to play along with it. You know, I thought I'd take a risk. And I said, yeah, in 10, 11, 12. And he just stopped laughing, like, immediately. He looked at me, and he said, you don't get it. (laughs) And he turned, and he walked out of my room. I feel that way as a pastor so much, and it breaks my heart. Because I'm up here, and I'm preaching. I'm saying, God is good. He came, and he died for you, and he's given you a way to walk away from addiction and bondage and pain, and he's given you the way to life and life to the full. And you guys say, amen, preach it, awesome. I believe that too. And then I watch you live your life throughout the week, and you continue to walk in bondage and addiction and pain, and I just sit back, and my heart's broken, and I go, oh, you don't get it. Because you think it's about a head knowledge, when in reality it's about a relationship with Jesus. And I think this is, this is really highlighted in our Bible Belt culture. Because what happens when you're about eight, nine years old is you're in a Sunday school classroom uh, with a lady who begins to describe hell in such great detail that you think she's from there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, you know, at the end of the class, she's like, so um, we have a decision to make. Do you want to go to hell where you burn forever and there's weeping and gnashing of the teeth and the worm never dies? Or do you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy? And we're like, well, I'm small, but I'm not stupid. I'm going to go that way. And so we have a bunch of people who made a decision based upon fear. They maybe got wet in a baptismal pool because it was the thing to do. And yet they have no real relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you something. Heaven is not a place for people who are scared of hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus. And if you don't love following Jesus and worshiping Jesus in this life, you're not going to like heaven very much. Because the great thing about heaven is we get to see Jesus in his full glory. It's Jesus and Jesus and a little bit more Jesus. So I would never want to scare somebody into the kingdom of God because that's not what it's about It's about a relationship with Jesus. Not just knowing about Jesus and what he did, but knowing Jesus. There's a big difference in knowing about and knowing. My fiance Taylor is here today. And there was a time I knew Taylor. I I, I knew about her. I I knew that she was the cute neighbor girl who stared at me a lot. That's, That's what I knew about Taylor. Now I know Taylor. Like I know some quirky things about Taylor. I know she is the sweetest girl in the world. But if you drive slow in front of her in the left lane, she turns into Satan. And I love her. And so if I told you I love Taylor, but you never saw it in my actions, would you believe that I love Taylor? Absolutely not. You see, but I can prove to you I love Taylor through the way I spend my time, through the way I talk about her, and through the way I spend my money. Through the way I spend my money. Like, if you want to believe that I love Taylor, you just look at my bank account, because she's all over it. When you love somebody, when you have a relationship with somebody, your actions Show it. And James is saying here, if you tell me you love God, but you have no actions to back that up, I don't believe that you actually love God. You may know about him, but I don't think you actually know him. And then as James closes this portion of scripture, he shows us how that manifests itself. What does it look like to show evidence of having faith in Jesus? And it all comes down to trust, that you trust his way is better, even when the world will tell you that way is better, even when it feels in your heart of hearts that that way is better. You trust that God's way is the best way. And he gives us two examples from the Old Testament. He starts with this one, verse 20. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Verse 21, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute, see it's not about your works, this is a prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In both of these stories, we see amazing trust in God. Uh, If you're not familiar with Bible background, Abraham was promised a son, and he waited for this son for a very, very long time. And, And don't confuse it that Abraham was a real living person. Put yourself in his shoes. He finally gets this son he's waited on for so long, and God tells him to go sacrifice that son. Man, he's waited for this his whole life, and yet he trusts God. He says, it doesn't make sense. I want to go away and do what I want to do, but I'm going to trust God. Why? Because he didn't just know about God. He knew God. And of course, he went up and God provided another sacrifice so he didn't have to kill Isaac. And God proved himself good as he always does. But Abraham had trust. Then we look at Rahab and Rahab hid the spies and she put her very life on the line because she trusted that what God said was true was true and good. And so I would ask you today, do you have trust in God's plan? Man, if he told you to step away from the job that you love, would you step away? If he told you to give up the thing you love the most in this world, would you give it up because you trust him? If he asked for your life, would you trust that it was the right decision? And I just tell you right now, if you're not trusting him in the small things, there's no way you would ever trust him in the big things. And you say, Blake, would you be able to trust him? And I can wholeheartedly tell you yes. You could come offer me a check for a trillion dollars and say, all you got to do is give up Jesus. And I would say, I'd rather be dead. And here's why. It's not because I'm good. It's because I've experienced the grace of Jesus and I know him. One of my best friends, his name is Daniel. And he told me a story a couple of weeks ago. And man, it sent chills down my spine. It was just such a good story. Um, I was like, man, we need to write this down in a book. And I asked him if I could share it. And he said, yes, feel free to share it wherever. Um, Daniel and his wife, Whitney, were married about one year when they had their first daughter. And then within the next year, our town had a big drug bust. And so uh, there was a lot of foster kids that were going into the system, and there wasn't enough parents. And uh, Daniel and Whitney felt led to take in two foster kids. And so their family quickly grew from two to three to five within two years. And uh, these foster kids were in really, really bad conditions. It was a little girl, about six, and a little boy, about four or five years old. And, um, I mean, these kids had been completely neglected. They were eating honey buns for dinner. They hadn't brushed their teeth in weeks. They had so many health problems. And because of that, that neglect, of course, they had behavioral problems, especially the little boy. I mean, he, he was just really, really, really bad. He would kick and scream and bite Whitney, Daniel's wife, and, and throw fits and just go into complete rage. He wouldn't listen to anything. And uh, it kind of all came to a climax uh, a few months into them having the kids when Rio, the little boy, had a huge outburst while Daniel was at work. I mean, he was hitting Whitney, talking back to Whitney, and just going crazy. And so Whitney called Daniel and said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I don't know what to do with this kid. Like, he's, he's going crazy. And Daniel said, just put him in his room, shut the door, and lock it. I'm on my way. I'll be there in 30 minutes. And within the 30 minutes it took Daniel to get from the church where he works to his house, Rio, the little boy, had destroyed the room. 
He had gone in his room and he had pulled the bookshelves down on the ground. He had punched holes in the wall causing hundreds of dollars of damage. He took his bed and his sheets and he flipped it over. He took his TV and he pulled it to the ground. He took all of his toys and scattered them around the room. And Daniel said as he opened the door and he walked in, man, he, he didn't even know what to do. Like he couldn't discipline the kid because he felt like if he disciplined him, he'd take it too far. He was just so angry with what this little boy had done. And so he just took him on a walk and he explained to him that if you're going to live here with us, the least you're going to do is respect my stuff and my wife. That's all I ask from you if you're going to stay here. You don't have to like it. You don't have to, you don't have to pretend to be happy. But you're going to respect the stuff we give you and you're going to respect my wife. And so Daniel went back to the house and he ripped everything out of Rio's room. No toys, no bookshelf. Uh, he went and put some putty over the wall. He didn't even really fix the wall because he figured he'd be punched again and messed up again. So he, he just kind of put some putty over the wall. He took the TV out. And all he had left in his room, a completely blank room, all he had was a bed, was a mattress, not even the frame, just the mattress and the sheets. And none of us would blame Daniel for doing that. That's what Rio deserved. He had proven he couldn't handle the stuff in his room. And a few months went by, and, and Rio's behavior hadn't gotten much better until one day Daniel was at work, Rio was at school, and uh, he felt God lay on his heart that he needed to go redo Rio's room better than it was before. And so Daniel took the rest of the day off of work. He went to Walmart, and he bought the paint. He didn't just paint the room like it was before. He painted the room with a mural of Batman because Rio likes Jesus, and so his favorite superhero is Batman. Right, like You can have any superhero you like as your favorite, um, but Batman's the best. And so if you disagree, you're wrong, okay? And Rio was right, because he liked Batman. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in there. Um, Daniel goes in, and he completely redoes the room. He puts all the toys back, puts the TV back. He gets in one of those cool beds that's like shaped like a car, you know, that little boys absolutely love. And, and he just goes all out on this room that this kid did not deserve. And Rio comes home from school. And Daniel said it, and he opened the door, he just began to cry, because he couldn't believe it. His whole life, he had been neglected. His whole life, he had caused pain for other people, and he knew he deserved that room. And yet, somebody gave him grace. Somebody gave him way more than he deserved. And guess what happened? After receiving that grace, Rio's behavior immediately changed. I know Rio to this day, and he is a pleasant young man. He's growing up in the way of Jesus. And it all came at that point of grace, and if you're a parent here, I'm not telling you to do that with your kids every time, okay? Uh, the kids in the last service got really excited when I started preaching that. No, I think discipline is a good thing. But for this kid, he needed grace. And here's why I love that story. Here's why I tell you that story. That's my story with Jesus. I destroyed the room. Before I knew him, my sin wrecked everything. And to this day, when I sin, my sin still wrecks everything. When I chase after what I want in my pleasure, I hurt people, I hurt those around me, I do things I shouldn't do, and I dishonor the name of God. I deserve nothing less than eternal wrath and destruction in this life. And we're just going based upon what Blake Farley does with his life. And yet God is so loving that he came and he lavished upon me something I did not deserve. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he did through Jesus Christ. And now I have a room way better than I deserve. The Bible says I'll have eternity in heaven with him in fullness of joy. And I'll rule over angels. I don't even know what that means. And that's awesome. And I don't have any, anything in me that deserves that. 
But it's not just heaven. God gives me a way to live in this life, free from addiction and pain. On my own, I can tell you what I would have done. I would have gotten married, and I would have ruined it with my sin. I would have ruined it with my addiction. I would have tried to have been a good dad, and I would have failed because of my anger. I would have messed up over and over and over and over again. But Jesus says, you can come and follow me, and I'll lead you to life. won't always be easy, but it'll always be the best. And so now because of Jesus, I'm able to walk away from what this world says is good, but it leads to destruction, and walk in the way of life. And I can tell you to this day, I'm not perfect, and I never will be. But one thing I know for sure is that a year from this very day, I'll look a lot more like Jesus then than I do right now. Not because I'm good, but because he is so good. Man, I just, I want everybody to taste and see that he is good. I want you to realize that Jesus doesn't call you into something so that you have to follow a bunch of rules. He doesn't call you into something just so for the sake of religion so you can pass a test, but he's calling you into life. That way leads to death. This way leads to life. It is a gift. It is a grace. And I want all of us to experience that because you don't have to do anything for the love of God, but the love of God will change you. And so as we close, I just I think I think there's a couple groups of people in this room. And I think there's some of you in this room who, man, you've been a Christian, been a Christian a long time, but man, we've just kind of lost sight of the amazing grace Jesus has shown us. So we've kind of begun to walk back in the way of our pleasure and what we want to do. And I just want to tell you, you're free from that. You don't have to walk in that pain and that addiction. You don't have to. You can turn back and begin to follow Jesus. And the Bible's very clear that although you may run from Jesus, he's still right there. And he loves you. And he wants to lead you into something better. And I think there's others of you in the room today. And, and man, you've never had a relationship with Jesus. You've had religion. And, and man, you, maybe you, you went to the Awanas program. And so you could tell me a whole bunch of facts that you learned when you were four years old. But it's never sunk down to your heart. Today, I, I would just ask you to take that step and say, Jesus, man, I just want to know about you. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want a relationship with you. It's been my prayer for the students all week. And that's my prayer for you guys today. Let's enter into a time of prayer. Jesus, your name is so sweet. So sweet, God. I just thank you that you would save somebody like me, a sinner. I don't deserve it at all, and yet you came. You lived the life I couldn't live, and you were brutally beaten and killed on a cross to pay the penalty of my sin. You rose again, and you freed me from the power of sin, and I believe one day in heaven you'll free me from the presence of sin. You are good, good Father. God, and I pray that everybody in this room would be able to experience that, not just head knowledge, but they would experience a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of these people. You would convict and move them in the way in which you want them to go. And as we remain in a prayer posture with our eyes closed and head bowed, I'm about to have Brandon come up here and lead us in a response time, but I just, I want to pray for you guys. So if you're here today and you would say, you know what, I'm a Christian, but I feel like I've drifted. I've kind of went away from the things of God, and, and I want to I walk back towards him. Would you just raise your hand so that I could pray for you? Amen. Thank you for that courageous step. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for these people, God, who, man, you've saved and you love, and no matter how far they've drifted, your love for them has not changed. You're not disappointed. You love them, but you want them to find life and walk towards you, God. I just pray that you would help them, give them the courage and the resources and the people to help them turn back towards you and to begin to walk in the life you gave them. And there's others of you in this room, I believe, who have maybe never accepted Jesus. You've never walked into a relationship with Jesus. And if that's you today, would you raise your hand so that I could pray for you? Amazing. Jesus, thank you 
for these kind souls, Lord, that we get to enter into our family. Not because they're good, but because you're good. Jesus, I just pray that you would embolden them as they begin their walk with you. And God, that they would taste and see that you are good. And that your grace would utterly and dramatically change them. God, I love you and I praise you. I pray that your spirit would move in this room. In your most heavenly name, amen.